a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics, exploring Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy during the Star Wars period. Episode 19, Star Wars number 4, cover date October 1977. time travelers it's ben ben avery and i'm here to talk about marvel sci-fi licensed comic books in particular this time from 1977 with a cover date of october 1977 and a release date of july 1977 so i set the dial on my time machine went back and i brought back with me a handful of comics Now, in case you were new to the podcast, this is how this works. Every month, I read the comic books that came out that month that Marvel licensed from movies or from books or, (laughs) in one case this month, from a real-life stuntman. We'll get to them. We'll get back to them. Every episode, I have a box of comics, and I'll pull out the next polybag, and within that polybag, there'll be a couple comics, and there'll also be a list of what I'm supposed to read that month. So this month, we have Star Wars number four, which costs a whopping 30 cents. We have John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number five, which costs another whopping 30 cents. We have Godzilla, number three, again, 30 cents, Human Fly, number two. 30 cents, and the Island of Dr. Moreau, which I am... I'm taking a look at because it was a sci-fi comic. It was licensed from the movie. It was also mentioned in an earlier uh, announcement in the bullpen bulletin. So I, I, I'm going to go ahead and, and pull that out. A grand total of $2.20. Now, other books that were released this month, but that weren't shared, they didn't necessarily have the October 1977 cover date on it, but they were released July 1977. Speaking of, uh, October 1977, that was the month that I would have turned three years old. And I have to say, actually, I have to ask, am I the only one who finds comic books with the month that is your birth month a little more special? Maybe a little better. Actually, better may not be the best word this month for 1977 with this, with this lot of comics that I'm taking a look at, some of them anyway. But I just always found it something you know unique. Whenever I get a comic book that has October as the cover date, even now, I'm not a kid anymore, but I, I see that and I just think to myself, oh, it's October. It's like a little birthday present from Marvel or DC to me. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's, it's like having uh, a book, you know, a character in a book who shares your name or a character in a movie who shares your name. You just, you latch on to them. You know, you like them a little better than some of the other characters. I like Ben Grimm better than I like some of the other characters in Fantastic Four solely because he he has the name of Ben. Um, Although this month is one reason why uh, having that (laughs) where you latch on to someone with your same name, in my case, Ben, isn't necessarily the the greatest feeling. (laughs) 
We'll get to it. We'll get to it. So the other two things that I was mentioning that came out in July 1977 were John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number one. Going to get to that in a minute. And then Marvel Special Edition featuring Star Wars number one. This book collects the first three issues of the Star Wars comic series. And so if you went and saw the movie and then you wanted more, well, you could go to the local comic place wherever you go to get your comics, the, the corner store, the five and dime, the grocery store, the gas station, whatever. Uh, it's quite possible you would have found Star Wars number four and Marvel Special Edition that collects the first three issues. You would have had the story up to the up to date. You know, uh, you still have to wait for five and six to finish the story. But you've got everything that they've published so far, and that's that's kind of cool. Now, they also did a, a Marvel Special Edition featuring Star Wars that collected the second half of the story. So you could have matching treasury-sized editions. And then they did one that collected all six. And so the Star Wars issue number one, uh, it was reprinted a lot. So um, now, the John Carter annual. I decided I wanted to do something special with the annuals. And so I'm going to do breakout episodes that are just focusing on the annuals. There aren't going to be a lot of annuals. Uh, Star Wars had a few, maybe, I think, three or four. John Carter, I think, had three. Rom, Space Knight had a couple. Micronauts had a few. I don't think any of the other series that I'm going to be covering actually had any. But whether they did or not doesn't matter. If I come to an annual, I'm going to do a breakout episode. And, and I want to do something special with it. And so one of the things I'd like to do is actually have a guest. And so I actually reached out to someone and asked them if I could interview them. And I have a very special announcement to make about who is going to be joining me during the episode about the John Carter Warlord of Mars Annual Number 1. I'm not going to tell you who it is right now. You're going to have to wait until the end of the episode to find out who is that special uh, guest. However, when I told Daniel and <laughs> Matt about who this guest was, man, oh, man, I was so excited. And they are so excited. We can't wait. And I just, I can't believe that, that this person, he actually said yes. And so, well, you just have to wait till the end of the episode for me to, for me to talk about that and give you the actual announcement. For now, I think it's time for us to get started and just get into the episode here. Um, <laughs> this month there was no 2001 A Space Odyssey. And, and strangely enough, I, I missed it. And, <laughs> Actually, now that I think of it, maybe it's because of the strangeness that I missed it. Uh, nothing this month is going to be as bonkers as 2001, although I will say that there are going to be some strong reactions <laughs> this month. Oh, boy. Well, I think we just need to get into it. Uh, normally, I start with Star Wars. Uh, this month, this October 1977 coverage is going to be no exception. So without any further ado, Star Wars number four, cover date, October 1977. Part one, why did Ben have to die? Star Wars number four, in battle with Darth Vader. Cover date, October 77, which you already know. And the release date was July 12th, 1977. Just to get the credits out of the way here so we can get started, Roy Thomas was a scripter and editor. Howard Chaikin and Steve Lealoha were illustrators in tandem. What does that mean? I'm not quite sure, except for it seems like, well, we'll get into it. Tom Orzachowski, letterer, and Archie Goodwin, consulting editor. So the cover has us, uh, it's an exciting cover. We have uh, Ben Kenobi in a green robe looking like some sort of uh, druid or something like that. He's got his lightsaber. He's getting ready to swing it. He's telling Luke, no, 
No, Luke, here I stand, though I may die. And Luke Skywalker is trying to shoot his blaster at Darth Vader. Princess Leia is putting her hands up and wearing her ruby slippers. Um, there's all sorts of interesting things going on in the cover here. Uh, the most interesting thing is that you have the hovering head of Darth Vader. And then the grasping hands hovering, looming over our cast. Uh, still the greatest space fantasy film of all time there on the cover. Um, it's a pretty good uh, composition. We've got an ominous Darth Vader with his deadly hands reaching for the small figures of Luke, Leia, and Obi-Wan. And I can't help thinking that they're creating Star Wars iconography here. Uh, that looming head of Darth Vader, I remember very vividly in the Empire Strikes Back posters and on other uh, covers and magazines and, and all sorts of things like that. But um, this giant head of Darth Vader with the giant hands reaching out for the, you know, the small and, and weak heroes. Uh, I think we're seeing one, if not the first time, one of the first times they're going to use this kind of, uh, this kind of symbolism and this kind of, of visual, uh, in battle with Darth Vader starts where we left off with issue three. Now this issue covers the movie from where they try to escape the prison block and, and go down into the trash compactor and takes us all the way to the escape from the death star. So, you know, last, last time, uh, that front cover, uh, that cover, uh, that front, that first splash page, I spent a lot of time talking about it because it just, there was just so much to the composition there. And, and this one I look at and I don't have that same feeling. Now it's not a bad page or anything like that. Um, you know, we've got our, our main characters. There's, they're in that, uh, hexagonal hallway and they're, they're shooting at the stormtroopers who are coming their way. And, um, there's lots of nice special effects. We've got a grunk from Chewbacca. We get some zick, zick, zick and zrap and zick and zzz. Uh, we've got some good blaster sound effects. Uh, we also have uh, five caption boxes, five <laughs> caption boxes of the backstory. You know, in case this was your first comic, probably the I think it's very likely, actually, that people were picking this comic book off of the shelf because they had just seen the movie. I have a feeling that issue number four uh, would be a, one, of, uh, one of the first comics that a lot of, of Star Wars fans would have found because they went and saw the movie and weren't aware of the comic. And then they go into their you know local grocery store, the Five and Dime or whatever. And, and while they're there, they see Star Wars on the shelf. And they think, oh, my goodness, I love that movie. So they get the caption boxes to just set the scene where we are. Uh, the first caption box actually says, we're kind of in a hurry, this issue. So pay attention. And then gives all the backstory. And boy, oh boy, that caption box right there, that just sets the tone. This story is brisk. This issue is quick moving. Uh, we're going, it's all the escape stuff from the Death Star. You know, this is where they go into the trash compactor. This is where they go down the garbage chute and the droids have to hide from stormtroopers and the walls are closing in. And, you know, when I... I even think about this scene. I just hear that music, that that droning, rising, it's just that tense, tense music. And I read it here, and as I was reading it, guess what music I was hearing? I was hearing that tense, tense music. And so they're they're 
the walls are closing in, the droids, they stop the walls from closing in just in the nick of time, and then it's the race to the Millennium Falcon. And meanwhile, Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader in that promised fight from the cover. At last, the battle with Darth Vader to the death. That's what it promises us on the cover. And this time, the hyperbole, you know, no, Luke, here I stand, though I may die. Obi-Wan Kenobi never says that, but he may as well have. I mean, that this, this comic book cover delivers. A lot of times, comic book covers do not. Well, this is one that definitely, definitely does. It ends with the Millennium Falcon blasting away from the Death Star, and it's a very dramatic-looking panel, very nice composition for the frame, and a perfect cliffhanger for this issue. The question is, from the beginning point to that end point, does it... How does it work? And and this is where things get a little iffy for me. First of all, the artwork in this book. There is a huge, huge quality drop in from issue three to issue four. When they say that the Star Wars movie adaptation art sucks, and I have heard a number of people say that, this, I think, is what they're referring to. I don't think they were talking about issue three. Now, issue three was inconsistent, and it would go from a couple panels of photorealistic, almost, artwork to just kind of this cartoony, very loose uh, caricature uh, of, the, of the actors or of the characters, even. And here in this book, uh, the, the layouts are okay. The tech looks fine. Um... Although going back to the layouts, almost every page has six panels and there's no outside of the box page layouts or anything like that. And there's no like in the last book, we had some splash pages with inset panels and and there is, you know, kind of playing along, playing around with uh, just the storytelling um, abilities that you have in a comic book page. And here you don't get that at all. It is six panels, six panels, six panels, slight difference in the layouts, but nothing unique, nothing odd. Everything is very balanced. Everything is very much, you know, it reminded me a little bit of Watchmen where Watchmen intentionally just had that nine panel grid and you, you know, maybe there would be a panel that would take the whole top tier. So you don't get nine panels on every page, but Every panel is going to be part of that grid, and that was part of the genius of Watchmen was actually to use that as part of the, the storytelling and as part of the pacing and everything like that. Here, it's six panels on every page because they have so much stuff to squeeze into this issue. I, I, I just don't feel like they're being innovative or anything like that. I feel like what they're doing is they're actually sitting down and saying – all right, what are we going to do? How can we squeeze this all in here? Well, it's by getting as many panels as possible. And, you know, it's Howard Chaikin and Steve Lealoha as illustrators in tandem. And so I can't help wonder if some of that just goes back to the fact that Howard Chaikin was not giving it his all. And so maybe he's taking Roy Thomas's outline. He's doing, you know, these... these uh, page layouts and as he's doing these page layouts he's just doing it as quick as he can and not really thinking about how can i make this energetic how can i make this fun i'm just gonna i just gonna tell the story that i'm that i've got in front of me and so then it goes to steve lealoha and what is he supposed to do well he's gonna follow what uh, howard chicken's lead was and and there's not too much he can do to change that 
on the other hand, I also wonder if maybe this is Howard Chaykin kind of pulling back and Steve Lealoha being forced to do some of these layouts and being forced to do some of the, the work there that he wasn't being, uh, that he wasn't doing before. I, I don't know exactly. All I know is these pages feel cramped and crammed and this issue feels rushed. Now, going to the artwork about the characters and stuff, the characters are not on model. Which, you know, when, when I say that, I mean the characters do not look like the actors necessarily. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. I th- honestly, with this issue, it almost feels like if they look like the, the actor, it's almost more of an accident as they're doing this kind of a more, a, a more cartoony, a more cartoony style. It's, it's definitely a less detailed style. And honestly, you know, character is more important than actor when you're doing a comic book. It's more important to have a consistent style and have a consistent character look than to try and get the character on model with every single illustration. And that's because that can get difficult. And so, you know, if I'm reading and I know who the characters are, that's really all that matters as long as they consistently look one way or another. And this book at least has consistency with that, whereas the last one didn't. This one definitely has consistency. But, man, the other thing here, though, is that while it's consistent, and I'll give it that as a bonus, the faces here, I don't usually get into artwork like this, but I this, this just bugged me. The faces, it seems like... You know, you, you hear the the rumors, or you know, all the things about the actors w- working with with George Lucas. He'd always say, you know, faster, more intense, faster, more intense. I feel like that's what they're doing on the page here with the comic book. Is that you know, uh, Howard Chaykin or Steve Lealoha or Roy Thomas or someone is saying faster, more intense, faster, more intense, and every panel has energy. They're yelling, they're gritting their teeth, and I am sorry. I am very sorry. And I, I, I like the work of Howard Chaykin. I like the work that I've seen of Steve Lealoha. Uh, but Han Solo just looks like he has this, I'm pooping face every other panel. Uh, he just, whatever I, I, if you took him out of context here, you could just, you know, have a panel where it just shows a bathroom door and then the next panel is that Han Solo face, and it would just be like, yep, he's pooping. Anyway, that's what it looks like. And everyone in the whole book has this kind of distorted lips to, you know, to reveal their, their pearly whites. Everyone, you know, uh, in almost every panel, they're showing their teeth. Almost never do you see anyone with a closed mouth where they're not showing off those bright, bright pearly whites. Except for one character. The one character who rarely shows his teeth through the entire book is Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that's because he's calm and he's cool and he's collected and he's in control throughout this whole issue. Well, not throughout the whole issue, but throughout most of the issue. And so he wouldn't, he wouldn't be having that energetic and yelling face. So let's talk about some of these moments here. Uh, the trash compactor stuff, it works. It works. I, I have a feeling that you're, you're seeing stuff that uh, they're trying to draw with very little uh, reference to go on, but it, it works. It works nicely. 
one of these panels looks like it was taken directly from like the film where you have them all they're 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 there the the camera's co- looking down on you them the walls are closing in han solo's got the one bar up there chewbacca's pushing princess leia has her legs out trying to hold it back and luke skywalker's talking to the radio it, it's a really nice panel and then there's one interesting thing that you get that's not in the movie is there's a panel of a tentacle reaching out to them after they are out of the trash compactor and Han Solo shoots it as they are, you know, they're out of the trash compactor and the tentacle's reaching for them from the trash compactor. And I've always been curious about that tentacle, you know, and what that creature was like uh, ever since I was a kid. And then I saw the Phineas and Ferb Star Wars episode and, and found out. So... They're running. There's lots of running. There's not as much detail in the storytelling here as there was in the movie as far as, you know, who was chasing them where. And I always felt that the, the movie did a very good job of, of presenting us with geography and knowing they had to get from this level down to this level. And to get there, they had to go down these halls. Uh, and it's, it's pretty good here. The one thing I would draw attention to is... Has Princess Leia and Luke come to that one uh, shaft where the door closes behind them and there's stormtroopers above and they're shooting down at them. Uh, and so Luke takes out the rope that he happens to have and he throws the grappling hook. I remember, you know, Princess Leia, she kisses Luke real quick. That was for luck kind of thing. And the way it's drawn in this book, first of all, it just feels very awkward knowing what happens later on. Uh, that kiss in this movie, it was never the one that people complained about. It was the kiss in Empire Strikes Back that was a little more awkward and, and Luke Skywalker's reaction to Princess Leia's kiss then. The kiss in Star Wars, it, there was nothing awkward about it. It was just a quick peck for luck. In the comic book, in issue four of the comic book, it is not a quick peck for luck. Luke Skywalker is going in. His mouth is parted. He is ready for action. Uh, and the dialogue, of course, does not does not reflect the paneling because uh, Luke acts like he's surprised in the dialogue. He says, what? And Princess Leia says, just for luck, we're going to need it. And I'm just thinking, wait a minute. It looks like, I mean, they both have their eyes closed and it's very uncomfortable. Of course, they don't actually show the kiss then, because then you turn the page, the very next panel, they're they're swinging. They're all the way across. I mean, it, it just feels like we missed a couple things here. But again, it's just that that brisk, quick, breakneck pace. We got to keep going, keep moving, keep moving. And that's a problem. There is so much crammed into this issue that there's no time for big reveals and no time for dramatic panels. Darth Vader's reveal is. On, on one page is a small panel out of six. And it's actually uh, his, when we first see Darth Vader and he see that he's watching Obi-Wan Kenobi, the, the composition is fine. Although Darth Vader is definitely hard to draw. Darth Vader's face takes up half of the panel and then Obi-Wan Kenobi is in the other half, uh, far, far down the hallway. And so there's, there's our first look at Darth Vader as he's about to get Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, and then later on, on the next page, we, we cut to Chewbacca and Han Solo for a couple panels. And then Obi-Wan, he's on his way to the Millennium Falcon, but he stops because Darth Vader's in his way. And we get this small panel. And it's dramatic enough, I guess, considering the constraints of these six panel pages. But it's just a small panel with this small, full body of Darth Vader. Darth Vader coming up to Obi-Wan Kenobi should be more dramatic, but... 
there's just no room for it here. And I'm not going to hold it against the book because, again, Roy Thomas wanted six issues. And the reason he wanted six issues is because there was a lot of story to tell and he wanted to be able to tell this story and tell it well. And so he's doing this in six issues, but he's still got more material than page space, I believe. And so when he's handing off these outlines to Howard Chaikin, it's just, here's this, 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 this. And Howard Chaikin has to decide how is this going to work? You know, and pacing and things like this is not easy, especially when you want to get everything in there. And I totally understand Roy Thomas's need here. I totally understand his want to include everything and be very true to the script. That's, that's what I do. A lot of my comic book work is adaptation where I'm taking someone else's story. In some cases, it's uh, George R.R. R. Martin's story. And in other cases, it's God's story uh, doing these Bible stories. And honestly, um, I almost wonder if it's the fans of George R.R. R. Martin who are more worried about changing things than the people who want to read the Bible stories. But, um, you know, I had to make sure we did not leave anything out of Hedge Knight because my job as an, as an adaptation writer is to get out of the way and be invisible and get out of the way between the story and the art and just make sure that it's going to the story is going to be paced well and, and work. And so pacing is super important, but... On the other hand, so is information. And so Roy Thomas had to make a choice. I've, I've had to make that choice myself before. So I, I'm sympathetic. Let's put it that way. But this is still moving really fast. The lightsaber battle, here it is. Obi-Wan Kenobi, he activates his lightsaber in one panel. We have one, two, three, four, five panels on one page. So they do break it, you know, pull back from the six. Five panels on one page of, of Darth Vader and Obi-Wan fighting. Lots and lots of words on those pages. Lots and lots of descriptions, you know, telling them, that, saying that they're like titans out of some lost time. He makes a sudden lunge, but is checked by a lightning movement. Even as they fight, Ben seems to be under increasing pressure and strain, as if an invisible weight were being placed upon him. A lot of words. The narration, it feels okay. It feels good. Uh, but this fight is just really abrupt. Like I said, there's five panels on one page here. And then we cut to our kids, the, the kids, and they're, they're talking about what do we do. We have to run across to get to the Millennium Falcon. All of a sudden, you know, they notice, wait, the stormtroopers, they're moving out of the way. And that, that's half of that page. And then you have three panels of Darth Vader and Obi-Wan again, zap, zzz, whatever. And then Darth Vader strikes the killing blow. Now, I do want to spend some time on the killing blow. Um, first of all, this scene makes me sad. All Every time I see it, I know what's coming. But it makes me sad, and it makes me sad for a, a number of reasons. One is when I was a kid, I felt sad to see Obi-Wan Kenobi be killed. Um, another thing is when I was a kid, my name being Ben, I always felt a connection to characters named Ben. Except for Benji, the dog. In fact, Benji, the dog, is the reason I'm not Benji anymore. Third grade, I came home one day and said, I don't want to be Benji anymore because people at school are calling me Benji, the dog. After that day, little Benji turned into Ben. He was growing up, becoming his own person, becoming his own man. I, of course, you know, you feel an affinity to characters who, who share the same name as you. And so I felt an affinity to Ben Kenobi, and then he dies. You know, he dies right before the second act 
is done. And so we still have a full act of the movie to get through where we're not going to even see him. We'll hear him, but we're not going to see him. The other thing I felt bad about is that whenever we would play Star Wars on the playground, guess who had to play the part of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Ben. Why Ben? Because his name was Ben. And so was Obi-Wan Kenobi. (sighs) I had to play the guy who was going to die. No matter what, I was going to be the guy who had to die. And so then maybe I'd be allowed to stick around and and be a blue space ghost. But uh, anyway, the panel is weird, though. In the movie, you just see the the lightsaber comes, the the robes, they fall. And and the same thing happens in the script. I was looking at the script to see how it was written. And and it's the same kind of thing. Um, It wasn't until uh, later drafts that Lucas decided he was going to kill off Obi-Wan Kenobi because he realized that for the, you know, that third act of the movie obi-wan didn't have anything to do and so he he decided well it has to happen here and and then you kind of get into some of the the myth the the um joseph campbell hero's journey myth that that feeds into that but it's very quick and and in the movie it just or in the the script rather it just says that his lightsaber slices uh the robes in two but the robes fall and they're empty now the robes do fall and they're empty and darth vader does investigate the robes but the panel where Obi-Wan Kenobi dies, it's this crazy, it's, it's got the, it's, the sound effect is rock, and the lightsaber is, is like buried in Obi-Wan's chest as it slices through. His robes are orange and yellow, and there's this wavy line work to his details, to Obi-Wan's details, as his face looks like this cartoonish, freakish, rah, scream of pain. This guy is dying painfully. He is exploding. There's red lines in the background. They're just like these explosive lines shooting out from his body. I look at this and I think, wow, that is very, very different. That is very, very different than what we saw in the movie. Uh, now, here then, when Luke Skywalker it cries out and and shouts, and that's where the stormtroopers notice that they're they're there at the Millennium Falcon, the emotion there, that exaggerated emotion, works really, really nicely, and and then uh, you know you have the, the voice of Ben Kenobi telling him to to run and to go, um, and you get this one brief moment where Luke sits there and says, "I can't believe he's gone," which we get from the movie, and then the Millennium Falcon blasts away from the the Death Star, and the next issue then is Escape to the Moons of Yavin. Uh, I like the ending that last panel a lot but getting from the first splash page to this last panel like i said man we are moving and we are moving fast so first half crammed second half okay but crammed and the ending that last panel super good and much of this, I think, feels like this, though, like I said, because I think Chaykin was just pulling back, and that's unfortunate. Uh, now, issue three felt rushed, but this feels like they are just pushing too fast to the point where it almost feels like it's falling apart. I don't think it's terrible. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not bad, but it's not the best. And I am then starting to worry about issue five and issue six. And I'm also starting to get excited about issue seven. I want to see some of those new stories. Now, sales here were very, very good. And this was definitely a boon to Marvel. And this is also then the month that issue four comes out. But the issue, uh, the, the treasury edition that contains issues one through three also came out this month. Star Wars was a certifiable hit for both 20th Century Fox and for Marvel. 
So I, I do want to mention, though, speaking of Howard Chaikin, I uh, mentioned that I found my Monarch Starkiller comic book. And I read it, and it's good. It's good. I I had forgotten what happens there. Uh, Chaikin wrote and drew it, and it's basically it's a space western, and it's literally about a bounty hunter who flies into town on a mining planet, and he's in search of a killer. The killer is there because he's planning to do some sort of assassination plot, and so you kind of get into some of the politics of the town. It feels like a western because not only are they riding horses, but these guys walk off the spaceship, and they're wearing spurs as they walk off the spaceship. I mean, come on. Yeah. We get it. This is a space western. This is not meant to be just any old, you know, sci-fi pulp thing. I mean, we're going for western here. And it works uh, like that. It's it's standard, but enjoyable. It does predate Star Wars, although because of the timing of when that comic book would have been worked on and the timing of when they would have started working on the Star Wars book, um, I was led to believe that this was something that Lucasfilm was looking at and appreciating, and that's why they wanted Howard Chaikin. However, uh, because of the timing of, of when his monarch Star Killer would have come out and Star Wars would have started you know, coming to him, I almost wonder if there is a little bit of Star Wars influence on Monarch Star Killer. I don't know. I'm not sure if if there if if I'm not sure about the timing there, but it could be. Uh, anyway, it's an enjoyable read. I recommend it to you if you like that kind of thing. If you like, uh, you know, the genre mashups and that kind of thing. Uh, this book, what separates it from just being a western in space is that it does give the hero sci-fi cyborg powers, and he has a sci-fi weapon. Uh, and there's kind of some elements of the force and lightsaber here, whether it's, I mean, it very well could be coincidental because the, the cyborg powers he has are a telepathic and cybernetic link to a mechanic, mechanical hawk. And it's kind of cool. It's from Marvel premiere and Marvel premiere was kind of a tryout book from my understanding and Marvel, honestly, I'm surprised that they didn't, but they, Maybe because it was Howard Chaikin and he was just kind of falling off the 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 book with with Star Wars, but Marvel could have tapped that for some new sci-fi to get in on the Star Wars bandwagon that they were already writing with the actual Star Wars book. But on the other hand, they already had something that was definitely something you could hitch onto the Star Wars bandwagon, and it's something that. Uh, premiered the month before Star Wars premiered as far as issue one came out the month before Star Wars issue one came out. So they already had another pulpy space fantasy that they could kind of call on to to ride those coattails. And so with that said, I'm going to go ahead and uh, I try to decide, am I going to do this next or am I going to you know do it last and let it cleanse the, the taste out of my mouth? But I think we're going to go ahead and, and do John Carter... Warlord of Mars in our next installment. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time.
Next episode, John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number five. Thank you.